0: It's an honor to be able to give this lecture. Um, So many revolutionary ideas in philosophy like hard determinism, materialism, skepticism have really bracing implications, and it seems like it's terrible. Those have really um, fundamentally challenging um, problems for the way we live our lives. But there's one revolutionary idea that philosophers have thought has a beneficial effect, and that is. Um, the idea that there's no self or that the ordinary way we think about ourselves is really misguided. And once we have a correct understanding of the self, then it will change our, our attitudes about our lives and about our deaths in ways that will be salutary. And so, what we've been doing over the last um, five years or so is trying to investigate these issues systematically. And of course, the background here, the, the, the deepest background here historically, is Buddhism, which holds that um, there is no self, that it's a mistake to think that there's a self. Ordinarily, people think that there is an enduring self that stays the same across time, across biological life, but in fact, there's no such thing at all. That's just an illusion. Um, the um, uh, the relevant Buddhist beliefs here, I'm not a Buddhist scholar at all. I've been doing research with um, Jay Garfield, and so um, this is largely vetted um, through Jay, but so here are some some of the critical beliefs that are associated with Buddhism. One is that um, nothing ever really stays the same. It's not just that the self changes. Everything is constantly in flux. Um, There is no self, as I said, that that's an illusion. Um, People talk of the self, and Buddhists make recourse to talking about the self, but it's only conventional. They're not using it in any way that's supposed to have metaphysical commitment. Um, now that's all probably pretty familiar. Um, one thing that I didn't know before talking to the, the Buddhist scholars is that Buddhists um, believe in something called rebirth that is supposed to be distinct from reincarnation. So reincarnation involves the self persisting across biological death into another organism or um, something, um, something else. But reincarnation involves one self persisting and then going on to another life. Well if Buddhists reject the idea that there's a self, then they can't very well appeal to reincarnation. And so what they say instead is that it's not really the same self that continues. It's just that there's a causal chain from one, one, self, one sort of stage to the next, and they, at this point they just use metaphors. It's like, well, it's like one candle lighting another candle lighting another candle lighting another candle. It's not the same flame in any real sense, but there's an interesting causal sequence across these kinds of um, transactions. And so that's supposed to be what happens in rebirth. Now, I confess that when I was first told this, I thought that there's no way they believe that, that that is crazy. That's that's got to be theological incorrectness. It's got to be bullshit. And they really believe in reincarnation, but they just say, oh, we don't believe in that because there's no self. However, as we'll see later, um, it's possible that I was wrong about that, um, and, and many other things, as we'll, as we'll see. So the Buddhist view is quite extreme. It maintains that there's no self, which is, for various reasons, you might think that that's implausible as a model of how the mind works. Um, Parfit's view, um, which he um, thinks has um, resonates with Buddhist views, is less extreme, He too thinks that people have mistaken views about the self. They think, people think that the self is this enduring thing, stays the same across the lifespan. And he thinks that's a mistake, there's no enduring um, soul-like self. What there are, he says, are chains of psychological connections. I have various psychological traits. Um, I had slightly different ones last week and somewhat more different ones a year ago and so on. So these chains of psychological connections exist, they're real, but they, they um, are attenuated across time, um, and Parfit says when he, come, when he came to appreciate this, when he came to appreciate that the self changes, it had this really transformative effect on his attitude, so here's one of his more um, uh, rhapsodic passages, um, he's not known for rhapsody, um, my life was seemed like a glass tunnel through which I was moving faster every year the end of which there was darkness. When I changed my view, the walls of the glass tunnel disappeared. I now live in the open air. There's a fundamental difference between my life and the lives of others, but the difference is less. Other people are closer. I'm less concerned about the rest of my my own life and more concerned about the lives of others. So Parfit maintains that he himself changed dramatically once his attitude about life and death changed once he came to appreciate this view about the self. So we're interested in exploring this more generally. Now, you might think that um, Derek Parfit is not really representative of the human race broadly. Um, uh, not here, is he? Um, okay. Uh, so here are three things both Buddhists and Parfit say should be transformed when you come to think that the self um, changes or that the self doesn't exist. One is that you should be more generous to others, at least in the future, because... Your future self is not as much you as you thought, and once you you rectify that sense that you're exactly the same person in the future, you should have relatively less interest in your future self, and so comparatively more interest in other people. Similarly, if you change a lot, then you might think that the actions that you performed last year are actions that you're less responsible for, because you're less the same person as the person who performed those actions. And then the third feature, and these are really central features in both Parfit and Buddhism, the third feature is that once you come to appreciate that the self changes um, across time, then your fear of future death should be (laughs) mitigated. Because that person 20 years out, let's say you're worried about death in the distant future, 10 10 years from now, that person is going to be so different from you, once you appreciate that, it should attenuate your fear. And so what we've been doing over the last several years is investigating each of these elements to see whether um, the um, changing people's beliefs about the self really has an effect on these factors. And the first study we did was um, inspired by previous work that Dan Bartels had done on intertemporal discounting, but I won't tell you about that because we don't have time, but um, using this work we manipulated people's beliefs about the self um, based on Dan's earlier work. Oh, okay. Um, so, in one condition, subjects are told social scientists have pro- provided lots of evidence that the self stays the same across time. The self is extremely stable, that um, your personality, your characteristics, your likes and dislikes are very stable after pubescence, and they stay the same across the lifespan. Um, In the other condition, we tell them the exact opposite, like um, social science has provided lots of evidence that this health is constantly changing. Of course it changes day to day, but it changes much more dramatically than you would have thought, um, such that after even three months, it's radically changed your values and um, personality characteristics. We're actually not lying to them because social science is in such a state of disrepair that um, (laughs) there's evidence for both of those things. Um, uh, Now, um, what we do in the study is we, we first manipulate their beliefs about the self and then we check to see if they've actually changed their beliefs about the self, asking things like, to what extent do you think you'll be the same person in a year, a scale of one to a hundred? And we find that the manipulation really works. People change their beliefs, at least they report different, um, they give different reports in these cases. Um, and then after that, they're told, now you're gonna get a bonus. They don't know this up ahead of time, but we're told now, ah, because you participated in the study, we're going to give you um, an opportunity to give some money to charity and keep some money for yourself. So, simplifying the study a little bit, um, they're given $6, but they're told either the $6 is going to come, oh, I should, I should um, they're told about the charity they're going to give to, um, uh, and Save the Children is the charity that we ultimately um, arrived at. We did some pilot work with Save the Elderly, but it turns out. Nobody wants to give to that charity. Um, <laughs> so we went back to save the children. Um, and, uh, and then what we were interested in was, well, if you, change the, um, if you change people's beliefs about the self and you're asking them to decide how much money to give to the charity in a week, then you think, oh, the self probably wouldn't have changed that much in a week. So we have a condition where it's one week, you're going to get the $6 in a week and you decide how to allocate to yourself and save the children. And the other condition, the payment is going to be paid out in a year. Um, And our prediction was that, well, because a week, the changes, people won't think that any changes really took place that were sufficiently significant. But in a year, we thought they should be more generous if they've been um, led to believe that the self changes a lot. Um, And that's exactly what we found. The scale's a little misleading here. This is is somewhat truncated. But it was a very big effect, made 25% they were 25% more generous when they were led to think the self changes a lot. As you see, this is flat when it's a week, but when it's a year, we get a significant spike in generosity. Now that result, when we got that result, I was extremely happy, um, but then I had immediately had a concern that, well, we just told them about the self and then we asked them this question there may have been a lot of experiment or demand, so we reversed the study Um, in this case we just started out by saying this is the first thing they see we say here's a little bit of information about Save the Children Um, uh, and we told them about the bonus payment they were going to get six dollars either in a week or a year again half of them got a week half of them got a year and they were going to make this decision about how to allocate the funds and then they choose their allocation how much goes to Save the Children how much goes to themselves and after that so now they've made their decision about charity After that we um, just asked them, rate the extent to which you think you'll be the same person in a year. Um, So now we're just measuring their attitudes and what we find is the same basic effect. So when they made the decision about whether to give to the charity in a week, there's no difference between um, the people who actually think the self stays the same and the people who think the self changes a lot. But when they were distributing the funds in a year, the people who thought the self changed a lot gave significantly more. So effectively, when they walk into the lab, um, their beliefs about the extent to which the self stays the same predicts whether or not they will um, give more to the charity. Okay, so that was, um, we took that to be a success and subsequently at Arizona, uh, my grad student Hannah Tierney and several others and I um, wanted to look at the second element here, attributions of responsibility. And again, we just did this high-low manipulation. Half were led to think the self changes a lot. Half were led to think the self stays the same. And then we just had them imagine that they cheated on an exam, either a week or a year ago, and had them indicate whether if their cheating was discovered now, how much punishment would be appropriate. And again, our prediction was that, well, if you cheated last week, your belief that the self changed a lot shouldn't make any difference. But if you cheated last year, then you should think you deserve less punishment if you think self-change is a lot. And that's exactly what we found. Um, and recently, um, Christian Mott has extended this in the context of um, statute of limitations, looking at people's judgments about crimes that were committed in the past, and their, the extent to which they think someone is the same person predicts their punitiveness. So. That was another encouraging result. And so now we just have this last item, decreasing fear of future death. Um, And so we um, did this initially by using a part of the death anxiety scale. So we said, imagine you will die in a week or die in 10 years. When you imagine dying in a week, one condition, 10 years in the other condition. How disturbed or anxious are you about the following aspects of death? And there are a few of them, but this is the most interesting one in the scale never thinking or experiencing anything again. That's the core existential worry. So our prediction was that if you um, have them imagine in a week that they're going to die, it doesn't matter whether they think the self changes a lot because they won't have have, um, had enough time to change for it to have an impact. But if they think that the self changes a lot and they're thinking about dying in 10 years, then the Buddhists and Parfit maintain that that should lead you to have um, less fear of death. So what did we find? Absolutely nothing. This is so flat you could level your house on it. Um, So we tried this in so many different ways. So I I put 10 years up there. We tried one year, that didn't work. We tried five years, we tried different scales. We tried amping up the manipulation, nothing worked. We could not get death anxiety to budge by telling the self changes a lot, contrary to all of our predictions and our Herculean efforts at getting the effect. We would have tried to replicate it if we'd actually gotten it, but it never came to that. Um, So then we thought, well, what about future pain? Like, what about, you know, there's a famous example from Bernard Williams. Um, We thought, well, think about future pain and um, think about the idea that you're going to get some painful procedure, a root canal, in a week or in a year, And we manipulate whether you think the self changes a lot or changes a little. We thought, well, um, again, this was our our naive prediction. We thought, well, if you think the self changes a lot, then you should be less anxious about a root canal in a year than if you think the self doesn't change much at all. So what did we find? Once again, nothing. The the red one is the relevant one. That's the, that's the the year condition. And it made no difference whether they thought the self stayed the same or the self changed. So we have this set of um, somewhat confirmatory results, so manipulating beliefs about connectedness, the sense, the extent to which the self stays the same, does seem to affect charitable giving, generosity, and it does seem to affect punishment, but it doesn't do anything for death anxiety or anxiety about future pain. And so one question is that I want to talk a little bit about is, is there some general kind of explanation for why we're failing to get the effects here whereas we're, we are getting them in the other cases? And the idea that um, I've been um, twining with lately is that it has something to do with the way the self is represented in memory and that it's represented in different ways for different kinds of tasks. And this is, this is pretty speculative, but I want to give you a sense of it. So familiarly, um, there's an old distinction in memory theory that um, in long-term memory you have semantic memories for facts, things like, you know, that I was born in Montana, that Washington was president of the United States at some point. Um, Then you have memories for experiences, like my memory of arriving in Oxford a couple of days ago, my memory of dinner last night, my memory of the experience of having dinner, um, having a conversation at dinner. Um, So those are different kinds of memory systems, and we know that um, in some cases patients have lost basically all of their episodic memory. So this is the patient KC who just died um, this year, Um, and KC can report no, he was unable to report a single experience from his life. When Tolving, the psychologist who worked with him, would ask him about his life, he would say it's blank. There's nothing. I can't remember anything. However, um, Casey had intact knowledge of things in the world. He knew, what, um, he knew how various machines worked. He knew about zeppelins in one of these interviews. In addition, he actually had knowledge of what his traits were. So they, would give him, um, they gave him a list of adjectives, um, personality adjectives, and they gave his mother the same list. And it turned out that he had a very good sense of what his characteristics were like um, as correlated with what his mother um, indicated. So even though he is unable to remember past experiences, he has um, a reasonable knowledge of his traits. So that's semantic memory. Those, that knowledge is stored in semantic memory. Um, well, what about episodic memory? Episodic memory is characterized in terms of remembering. Like if I think about dinner last night, I remember what it was at the hall in Jesus College, but not the high table I was told. Um, where um, so we had what was dinner? Where was at the um, not high table? And when was last night? At I don't know six thirty or seven or something like that. Um, but I remember the experience and the the I don't know the trademark expression now is it's a kind of mental time travel. I'm traveling back in time to recover this experience. And critically, part of episodic memory is the awareness that the event happened to me or will happen to me when you're thinking about mental time travel into the future. So one of the themes in recent work is that recollection of the past and projection into the future in this uh, this kind of episodic fashion is done by similar systems so that when I think about the past, I'm remembering something happening to me and when I think about the future, I'm thinking about something happening to me as well. But then the question is, so we, we have this notion of the self as a collection of traits, we know that's stored in semantic memory, but basically all social psychologists ever talk about when they talk about the self as this trait set. Tolvin himself asks, well, when you think about episodic memory, when we think of the self as a traveler who engages in mental time travel, what is it? And he says, well, it's defined in terms of its properties and in terms of its relations to other components of the system. Was well, it theory and cognitive science, I mean, maybe that's right, but is that how we represent to ourselves the self and episodic memory? And I think that's pretty implausible, because I think that the episodic sense of self that we have when we think about the past can really be dissociated from traits. And in one direction, we can see this um, by considering um, a patient that um, Stan Klein and I wrote about a couple years ago, RB. This was... Um, uh, Uh, well-educated person who got in a bike wreck and had significant um, head trauma. And after the accident, he could remember things from his past life, but he said they didn't seem like they happened to him. They seemed like scenes in a movie. So he had the knowledge of the scenes of his life, but they didn't come with the sense that they happened to me. He had completely intact knowledge of his traits. He knew exactly all of his characteristics. He was perfectly fine on that. It's just that there was this weird feature that it didn't seem to him like the (coughs) events occurred um, to him. So here's a quote from the um, interviews. I was remembering scenes, not facts. I could clearly recall a scene of me at the beach in New London with my family as a child, but the feeling was that the scene was not my memory, as if I was looking at a photo of someone else's vacation. So he had no trouble representing that he, RB, had experiences on a beach in New London, no trouble representing that his body was there. We know that he had this trait sense of self, he knew what his traits were. It just seemed like there was this distinctive sense of I was there, the distinctive sense that I had those experiences that seemed to be absent. And what that suggests is that this episodic sense of self that I had the experience can be disrupted even when the trait conception is held constant. So that's one kind of dissociation. Now, RB is just one case, but there are other cases in the annals of of neurology as well, and work on the, I won't go into this, but um, I can talk about it in Q&A if you want, but work on the field observer distinction suggests that you can get a similar phenomenon with subjects who um, have uh, undergone post-traumatic stress, who suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. So it looks like knowledge of your your traits is not enough to give you the sense that something happened to me, but more significantly for the current question will be, is trait similarity necessary for a sense that something happened to you in the past? And you can look to um, to brain damage cases to get some kind of um, uh, indication on this, so HM who had massive loss of memory and unable to form new memories, had some episodic memories from his past, and when he would report them, he would report them with with great verb as if they happened to him, I remember having a gun with a scope, Um, a more eloquent figure, um, uh, um, wow, that's bizarre. I can't remember the name of a brain damage patient. That's too bad. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, um, but he wrote essays about having brain damage, and he talks at the beginning of his book about how the um, once you have brain damage, it changes yourself. It fundamentally changes who you are. I'm not the same person. But then when he talks about his childhood, he... Um, he talks about it in ways that are extremely identified with the person. He talks about remembering having these experiences of playing with these baseball cards and bending his hat to look like his favorite baseball player. But we can see the point, I think, that um, trait similarity is not required for the sense of personal identity by thinking about more mundane examples. So. In the case of Skloot, that's his name, in the case of Skloot, he says, I'm a completely different person now. But then when he talks about his past, it sounds like he's identifying with him. Well, think about some significant experience from your past, like, say, your first kiss. Now, those kids are really young. I I I was in my 30s. Um, uh, (laughs) But uh, when you think about your first kiss, when I think about my first kiss, it's not, I don't, It just seems like, yeah, but finally a girl kissed me. Um, I I don't think, but my traits are different. I'm really not the same person. And when I think about my first kiss, I just think, yeah, that happened to me. It's not in any way attenuated by the fact that I know that my traits are very different than they were um, when I had my first kiss. So the idea that you can recognize that your traits have changed and still have every bit of the sense that something happened to you um, seems to be really plausible And so it seems like the way we represent the self in semantic memory is in terms of our set of traits, um, but we have a special way of representing the self that occurs in episodic memory that is not tied to traits. That you can have the traits change dramatically, but it still seems like it was me. The same thing holds presumably when you project yourself into the future. When I think about something happening in 20 years, um, I don't think, but my traits will be very different then. I just think about like sitting in my rocking chair or, or whatever, some boring thing. Um, but I think, yeah, I'll be sitting in my rocking chair being really bored. I don't think, and that person will have um, much more experience. He'll be wise. And, um, uh, I don't think that at all. I just think about what the experience will be like. And so this suggests that episodic memory carries a sense of self that's really different from the trait sense of self that we have in semantic memory, um, since radical changes in our traits doesn't sort of uproot that sense of identity that we get when we have a memory of an experience, and so now this this comes back to the um, the original puzzle, which is why are we not getting effects on death anxiety and pain? And I think it's because when you think about the um, when you anticipate your future death, you're thinking about your death. You're not thinking about your traits at all. You're thinking I'm going to be there in the future, and then I'm going to die. You're not thinking, and I will have um, more knowledge of classical music or something like that. That's not even it. Um, you're not thinking, I will have more refined views about um, artificial um, in- intelligence or something like that. You're just thinking, oh, there I'm going to be there and then I'm going to be dead. Um, similarly with pain, when you think about pain in the future, you're not thinking about, oh, but I will be a better philosopher in a year when I'm getting my root canal. Um, I think, no, I'm just going to be there and it's going to hurt. Um, And so it makes sense that you would easily just move forward without worrying about your traits when you're thinking about experience or death. (coughs) So that is where the project um, was as of about 18 months ago, and I presented it at a Buddhist um, institute, and Jay Garfield, who's a Buddhist um, uh, scholar, said, well, look, what do you expect you're asking a bunch of westerners who've been like their entire life has been in, uh, has been imbued with the idea that the self stays the same across time what you need to do is look at a population that really systematically um reinforces the idea that there isn't a self and so he said we should look at tibetan buddhists in settlements in india and so that's what we've been doing jay and nina Strumminger and i so um uh, one set of participants were um, lamas in monasteries in southern India. Um, so these were, all, um, almost all of them were um, monks or trained to be monks. Um, and, uh, and then, um, yeah, those were in southern India. And then we also had a group of lay Tibetans in northern India. Most of the data will just be the lamas because that's we have a fuller data set for them. Then we looked at Hindus in the Varnasi area because we wanted to look at Hindus because Hindus believe in reincarnation. They really do believe in reincarnation, not rebirth. They think that there is a thing, Atman, that stays the same, that probably translates pretty well to soul, that stays exactly the same across biological life and then continues into the next life. And our third group of subjects were Abrahamics in the U.S., and these were mostly Christian. There were a few Muslim participants, but it was mostly Christian. Um, And so there are a series of questions that we wanted to get at. One is, do Buddhists um, report no self-beliefs? If you just look at this in a fairly explicit way, um, do they uh, report that they think the self doesn't exist? And We have ex- both explicit measures and implicit measures, I'll go through both of them. So, One thing is we just gave them the same kinds of questions that Dan Bartels and, and in our earlier work had used, things like this. Please think about the important characteristics that make you the person you are now. Your personality, temperament, major likes and dislikes, beliefs, values, ambitions, life goals and ideals and rate the degree of connectedness between the person you expect to be in one year compared to the person you are now where zero means I'll be completely different in the future and 100 means I'll be exactly the same in the future. So what do we find? Here are the Abrahamics, they're like, I'm gonna be really the same. Here are the Hindus who are a little less um, than we expected. What about the Tibetan lamas? Way down there, the modal response was zero. I will be zero the same person in a year. Um, uh, So in a second measure, trying to test the same thing with slightly different um, instrument, we asked, to what extent do you agree with this statement? There is some essential core that is yourself that stays exactly the same throughout your life. And what we find here is that the Abrahamics and the Hindus are very high on that. Um, And then now here we have lay Tibetans, and the lay Tibetans are significantly lower, and the lamas are at the floor. They're like, no, there is nothing like that that stays the same across life. Another thing that we did is we asked them, when you think about death, what are some of the things that you... um, That you recruit basically as a coping mechanism what things do you use to reassure yourself that you shouldn't be afraid of death we had a number of items but we really cared about this one there's no self that stays the same across time anyway so what do we find here What we find here is that um, so here are the Christians like what (laughs) no I never thought that the reason I shouldn't fear death is because there's no self (laughs) Um, uh, but then here are the Tibetan lamas. like almost every one of them said yes to that okay so um, what about um, the belief in impermanence so we constructed our own scale for this because there wasn't one but we have items like nothing lasts forever or and this would be reverse coded for the most part the world is the same changes are only superficial Um, and then we um, can look at the groups, and you see here, this is a less stark difference, but it's significantly different. Both the lay Tibetans and the Lamas have significantly higher belief in impermanence on our scale than do the Hindus or the Christians. So in all of these explicit measures, it looks like the Lamas especially are very committed to this no-self idea. Um, We also wanted to look um, uh, look at this a little less explicitly. So... One less explicit task um, was based on a recent um, study that was published in Science by a social psychologist. I guess the, the senior author was Dan Gilbert. Um, and it explores people's sense that their preferences will be the same in the future um, as opposed to the past. And because social psychologists are just basically marketing geniuses, They called this the end of history illusion because people think that they won't change into the future. They know they changed in the past, but they're not going to change in the future. And so this suggests that people have an illusion that history is over. And that's how you get written up in the New York Times. Um, So (laughs) we gave this task to our subjects. And um, so... The, the, the design of their study is actually pretty cool because you just ask really simple things like, what is your favorite kind of music? Um, and then they give an answer, they some specific answer. So you might, in the West, it might be rap or it might be jazz. And then you say, "Was your favorite kind of music um, in the past 10 years ago different than it is now? Uh, you ask a future question, do you predict that your favorite kind of music will be the same or different in 10 years than it, than it is now? And so we gave this task to our subjects um, and what we found was that um, The subjects um, in the original study tended to think that their preferences would remain the same. Um, We thought, well, since the Tibetans are supposed to think that the self changes a lot, they shouldn't show as much of that kind of effect. They should be more sensitive to the fact that those things are changing. So what do we find? Well, here's the the Abrahamics, the, the Western subjects, they show a significant effect it's not a huge effect, but it's not a huge effect in the science paper either. What about the Hindus? Flat, um, are not significant anyway. And then the lay Tibetans and the Lamas are absolutely dead flat. And notice how low the Lamas are. They're very low in the, in the sense that they were the same in the past and very low in the sense that they'll be the same in the future. Okay, so one last, um, somewhat more implicit task. We use this famous experimental design um, developed by Frank Kyle, where you ask people about um, uh, transformations of either natural kinds or artifacts, and so we say um, there's this horse and these brilliant scientists, um, uh, plastic surgeons, take the horse and they change what it looks like on the outside and they change some of its behaviors and at the other end this is what it looks like and then you say when they were finished was this animal a horse or a deer and when you give these tasks to um, at least seven-year-old children and adults in the West massively people say that is still a horse it's just a horse that's made up to look like a deer Whereas if you take um, an artifact like a tie and you say, oh, they took this tie and these, these, again, brilliant scientists took a tie and they cut it up into little strips and they made it into that. Now do you think it's, now you think it's a tie or do you think it's um, shoelaces? And um, what we found was that Abrahamics and Hindus show a strong, predictably, a strong essentialist effect. So they were much more likely to say it's still a horse Um than they were to say it's still a tie Um, the lay Tibetans showed an effect as well just as strong but the Lamas showed much less of an effect it is an effect but it was much smaller it is a clear interaction such that they have moderated very significantly the extent to which they think that um, it's uh, that that there's a difference between natural kinds and artifacts in their their, um, essential features so The summary of this so far is that the Buddhist doctrine of no self and anti-essentialism and impermanence are really, they are there in that population, especially the lamas. It's really insinuated into the way they think about these things. It's not something that is um, completely um, off the table for them. It's very clearly in their explicit responses and in those implicit tasks as well, especially for the lamas. So now let's look at death. So we had two main two main measures for this that we were interested in. One was the fear of personal death scale, which is a much longer scale than the death anxiety scale. There are, are lots of different elements in it, but we were really interested in one one factor, the self-annihilation factor, which had several items in it, but here are two examples from it. Um, dying one year from now frightens me because of the loss and destruction of the self. Dying one year from now frightens me because of the destruction of personality. And, of course, um, our thought is, well, the Tibetans should be more likely to say that that doesn't frighten me as much because I don't think that there's a self anyway. So that's our that's our ambition. And the second task we had was a kind of trade-off task that's inspired by the earliest work I told you about, the stuff on generosity and the earlier work that that was based on. So we said, imagine you have a terminal disease that will kill you in six months unless you take medication. There's just one dose of the medication available. If you take the medication your life will be prolonged by six months and um, uh, so you'll live 12 instead of six and then we basically gave them a set of um, uh, pairwise choices to see well you'll live this much longer it will always be six months longer and somebody else if if you let the drug go to them he's like you but a stranger Um, you let the drug go to them they will live some degree longer than you so here's what it looks like you just decide, so if it's going to be six months for me and one month for him, what will I take? Well, presumably I'll take the six. Six months for me and two months for him, still the six. What about down here? Six months for me and five years for him. Maybe I'll give, him a, uh, maybe I'll give it to him then. So we, we wanted to see where people would switch here. And, of course, our prediction was that Tibetans would be more generous in trading off months of their own life for years to another person because they would think that the self changes a lot. And so, the, or the self doesn't even exist, and so they shouldn't be so concerned about their future self. So, one thing that we recently did is we got um, some some monks at the Central University of Tibetan Studies, which is where our research was based out of, to just norm the fear of um, personal death scale. To just give us a sense, where we said, "Tell us what you think a Buddhist should say to these questions." And so they said, "So here's." the scales are always, all these fear scales are constructed so that the bottom is more fear and the top is less fear. And they were like, they based so we had 30 of them and the mean was close to the ceiling that, that you shouldn't have any fear of self-annihilation. So this was again that self-annihilation factor. So now let's see what the data suggest. Well, so here the Abrahamics, they're significantly less than what um, the monks suggest that you should be. Um, the Hindus, significantly less than what the monks say you should be. Um, the lay Tibetans, again, significantly less. So what about the lamas? So here, what we're hoping is that the lamas will be right up there near the top of the scale. And so this is what we find. They have massively more fear of self-annihilation than any of the other groups. Um, this, was, this was devastating to us. We got this result. And the first thing I did is I wrote to our, um, our guy in India who was doing it and I said, I think you reversed the, the labels on the scale. You need to check because I think you put disagree and agree on the wrong sides. And he went back and he checked. No, he said, he said, I was shocked by this too. I don't know what's going on. We had two different versions of this study, like two totally different populations that we were looking at of the because we had different conditions. The same thing showed up in both cases. So why is it that the um, the llamas report much greater fear of self-annihilation? Well, um, I was talking to a colleague about this and wringing my hands about it, and he suggested that, well, maybe it's that they have much greater fear across the board, like so much more fear across the board. And then if you look at their fear of self-annihilation relative to that, maybe that's lower. And so I immediately went home from the bar, Um, and looked at this. Um, So here are some of the other elements, just to give you a sense of the scale. As I said, it's 31 items. The the self-annihilation factor is just five. Here are some other items, though. Dying one year from now frightens me because of missing future events, um, because I'll be forgotten. Um, It frightens me because of the unknown associated with it. So um, we wanted to look at how the Tibetan lamas responded on the rest of the scale. This is the rest of the scale. Um, for the Abrahamics and the Hindus, and so what we were hoping was that what we would find is that the Lamas would be um, way down here, really scared of everything about death, and then we could show that their fear of self-annihilation was higher. So what did we find? Not at all. They were absolutely no. They were just as fearless about um, the rest of the scale as were the Hindus. In fact, these had exactly the same mean that there was no difference in their their responses to the rest of the scale. It seemed to be distinctively about self-annihilation. Their fear seemed to be distinctively about self-annihilation. In fact, there's a huge interaction here. So this is self-annihilation, and that's the rest of the scale. They're just like the Hindus on the rest of the scale, but on self-annihilation, they're terrified. That's normalized with the z Um, z-score. So maybe we thought, maybe it's that the lamas don't believe in an afterlife. Maybe that's the thing. so we used an afterlife belief scale. And again, we we're, were hoping here that maybe the lamas would be way down here. And no, they believe in the afterlife just as much as Abrahamics and more than Hindus. Um, so that was really disheartening, given our prediction about the benefits of being a Buddhist. So let me tell you now about the trade-off study. So our prediction here was that well, what you'd find is that the Buddhists would be like, oh, man, you know, at six months, actually, we talked to, when Jay and I were in India, we talked to the guy who ran, ran, ran at the time the Central University of Tibetan Studies, who's a very distinguished monk. And he said, well, at one month, no, I wouldn't do it. At two months, no. At six months, it's basically tossing a coin. So no, at nine months, yes. At nine months, I would, I would say the other person um, should get the drug. I would give the drug to the other person. Um, so what do we find? Um, here, you're more generous if you go earlier on the scale. So if you say, I give it right away, then you're more generous. So um, the higher you are, the more selfish you are. So here are the Abrahamics. Um, here are the Hindus. What about the Lamas? And we're hoping somewhere somewhere in here. We'd be happy with like that. Whoa, they're way more selfish about their um, future <coughs> months and years. Um, if you just look at people who said, no, I won't do it at any price. Like, I'm not going to give that to that guy at any price. Um, more than 70% of them are like, no, I'll take it, I'll take it all. I'll, I, doesn't, I don't care how much I got it. Um, So there's this paradoxical effect of Buddhist teaching. Um, uh, Buddhism is supposed to mitigate fear of death of self, but what we find is that um, there's dramatically increased fear of um, self-annihilation, and decreased um, life generosity among the lamas. So one thing is that this suggests, contrary to what I said initially, that these guys really do not think that rebirth is reincarnation. What they think is that, yeah, at biological death, that is it. I'm not going to go on and myself isn't going to continue into the next life. Um, so There is no, I think, theological incorrectness there. It seems like they really don't expect there to be a self persisting into the next life. Um, So what is it that is happening here? And I think that what's happening here is, on a much more interesting scale, I guess, culturally, is that it's this sort of persistent sense of identity that we have from episodic memory and episodic foresight Um, that just just works powerfully, it's internalized in us to such an extent that it's very hard to budge with philosophical reflections. Um, So, that is, the the comparison is a little bit, um, seems a little bit uh, inappropriate to make, but if I think about my first kiss, and like I think about how much I've changed since my first kiss, that sense of identity with my past self is really robust, and the idea is that It's robust even in people who've been trained to think that there's no self. They cannot rid themselves of that sense of identity across the biological lifespan that is yielded by episodic memory and is contained in episodic foresight, thinking about the future. And if you look at um, this tradition of Tibetan autobiographies, which seems like a a funny genre to have, but... um, Tibetan autobiographies that are supposed to reveal how the the important monks have um, had a journey of discovery, and in perhaps the most famous one by one of the great enlightened um, Buddhist monks, in the Milarepa, he he recounts in this in these um, pages things that seem like they clearly implicate um, a past self. So when I realized he's He goes back to his hometown after abandoning his, his, well, leaving his mother. Um, She was very upset. She didn't want him to leave. And he comes back decades later, and he finds her bones. And he says, when I realized they were the bones of my mother, I was so overcome with grief that I could hardly stand it. Um, I could not think. I could not speak. And an overwhelming sense of longing and sadness swept over me. This really sounds like he's thinking, um, he's thinking back to the time when he had this experience, when he's writing his memoir, basically. And he's saying, yeah. I had this experience and then he's reporting the sense of the sense of episodic recollection of being there to have that experience and that seems like something that even among the monks they have a very hard time um, uh, combating that inclination and so it seems like the the kind of problem that we have with the fear of death and death anxiety is something that runs sufficiently deep in human psychology that even training yourself to think that there's no self can't really budget. And that's why we're not finding in the Western population, but also, more significantly, we're not finding it in the llamas either. Thanks.